Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, actually. And you can actually stand real quick. I'm actually going to have a stand uh, to, as I read God's Word, because it's just a reminder as we stand. I mean, uh, like I said, I've said it before, but we stand for the flag. We stand for many things, and it's a sign of showing respect uh, to authority. And this is our chief authority as Christians. So I'm just going to read it for us, Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1, and then I'll pray for us. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sin, for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much more, ex, more superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have indeed spoken, that we are now recipients of your word. Thank you. Lord, you're so kind. You're so abundant in mercy. Help us, Lord, to receive you, Lord Jesus, even today on your terms, we pray. This we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Francis Schaeffer once made the observation, and I thought very, very helpfully, that he said, I want you to just hear what, what he says. I'm going to read a little lengthy quote here at the beginning, and then I want to unpack it just a little bit. He says, I've come to the point where when I hear the word Jesus, which means so much to me because of the person of the historic work, historic Jesus and his work, I listen carefully because I have with sorrow become more afraid of the word Jesus than almost any other word in the modern world. I want you to think about that statement, that he's become more afraid of the word Jesus than almost any other word in the modern world. I agree with him. The word, he says, he goes on, is used as a countless banner. There's no rationale scriptural content by which to test it. He goes on to say, increasingly, over the past few years, the word Jesus, separated from the content of the scriptures, has been the enemy of the Jesus of history. The Jesus who died and rose and is coming again and who is the eternal Son of God. Now, I agree with Schaefer. I think Schaefer is actually hitting on something. Now, he wrote almost 50 years ago. Think about that. 50 years ago, Schaefer's saying that the word Jesus has been so stripped of its historical, scriptural content. And I agree. We live in a generation right now, at least the younger generation, that has, that has seen a great regression from Christianity. And I wonder, I wonder when I think about this, when I think about that statement from Schaefer and I read Hebrews 1, why that is. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you wonder, why is that? Why is there such a regression? And I would argue that actually, I think it's because of what he's saying there. 
We have so stripped Jesus from His historical, scriptural content that we have no clue who Jesus is. When you talk to a student, I'm just always surprised when I talk to students, and they'll say, yeah, I abandoned my faith. I left Christianity. And I'll ask, okay, who's Jesus? Well, He's my friend. He's kind. He's compassionate. And what it sounds like, as Schaefer says, he says it actually sounds more like this. He goes on to say, it is now Jesus-like to sleep with a girl or a man if she or he needs you. As long as you're trying to be human, as you're being like Jesus, Jesus-like, to sleep with the other person at the cost of breaking the specific morality which Jesus taught. But to these men, but to these men, this does not matter because there is, that is downstairs in the area of rational, scriptural content. And his point there is to say, Jesus has been so stripped of who he really is that now it's when we affirm people's same-sex attraction. I've been dealing with this so much recently, working with crew, working with, working with all sorts of things. People will say, well, it's not, it's not like Christ to, to deny them of that. Well, no, like maybe we need to be very careful of the Jesus we're talking about because the Jesus according to Scripture is very, very important. We define Him correctly. So I want us to see, if you're taking notes today, see this. See this, if you get nothing else. In Christ alone shows the comprehensive nature of our destruction from sin and the necessary salvation to redeem us. Now, the Reformers, actually, I thought were very actually helpful, and the reason why I'm covering what we're covering today from Hebrews 1 is because they really actually rediscovered, they didn't discover it, they, they re-brought it to the forefront, these a threefold office of the Lord Jesus. And I think it's helpful that we know it. I love what Stephen Wellam, reflecting on it, he said, Christ's threefold work demonstrates how sin ruined our knowledge of God, prophet, and the righteousness of our desires and deeds, the priest, and our submission and obedience to the Lord, the King. So we're going to look at, at Jesus' priestly office, his, his prophet office, and then His kingly office today. Now, the book of Hebrews was written about 60 or 70 A.D., and it was written to a group of Christians who were deeply persecuted. And in their persecution, likely, it doesn't, the letter never says, but you can see what he's aiming at in the letter, uh, it looks like they were experiencing deep persecution, and so people were actually reverting back to their former way of Judaism. And the whole book of Hebrews, he says over 13 times that Jesus is the better. Now, it's the better Adam, the better, the better Moses, the better all, all, and he goes through all these different pieces. But he actually calls his letter a word of exhortation. See, he'll talk about deep, deep, lofty things, and then he'll tell you, don't sin. He'll say, he'll remember Melchizedek and this shadowy figure, and then say, walk in obedience. But the point of the whole letter is Jesus is the better. But the better what? That's what's important we ask. The better what? Who are we talking about? When we say Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, who are we referring to? And I will contend to you, I think these three offices or, or roles of Christ embody the Lord Jesus. And so I want us to look at our first one. Jesus, our great prophet. And it's a better word. It's a better word from God. 
Now, notice what Hebrews 1 says. Again, jump back there just real quick, how he starts it off. And this, it, you can't hear it, but there's a lot of poetry even in this first phrase. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, we need to remember, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the role of the prophets, the role of the priests, and then the role of the kings, and then we're going to see who Jesus is, okay? So what, would, what is a prophet in that way? So Jesus, it says here in Hebrews, the writer says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, the prophets, very simply, could be referred to as covenant watchdogs. I love that phrase because I just picture a watchdog being someone who would come and they would look out for you and say, when you're doing something wrong, that's what, a, that's what a, a prophet would do. I think this is actually really helpful. I sketched this up last night I was, as I was thinking about it. A prophet actually came from the people, but then God spoke to them to then recorrect the people. So you see that little like feedback loop. I think it's helpful to think about that. So they came from the people, God speaks to them, and then they recorrect the people. And, and you can remember, if you've, if you've listened to any prophetic literature in the Old Testament, people didn't like the prophets very much. <laughs> it's, that's a pretty understatement, actually. But the prophets actually spoke in very, very many different ways. The prophet Ezekiel laying on his side, condemning Israel. Or the prophet Jonah from the belly of the whale. Or the prophet Job who spoke through immense suffering. God spoke through men in many, many, many different ways at various times in Israel and outside of Israel. But that's what I want us to remember. Prophets are covenant watchdogs. So when the people would break the covenant, he would come and he would say, go back, return to the Lord, return to the Lord. But here's a very important question we need to ask of each of these figures. Why is a prophet necessary for our salvation? Why are we even talking about this? And do you see, real quick, if, if you detach Jesus from the biblical portrait of Jesus, we completely miss his prophetic nature, don't we? We completely miss it. And then we think Jesus is just there to affirm us. I will tell you, I actually become very skeptical of my own even time of reading Scripture. Give, maybe give it a, a two weeks. If I'm not radically confronted by something in my own life from the Scriptures, you know why? Because the Bible is prophetic. God's Word speaks to us to do what? To correct us. Prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. So we need a prophet because we're limited. We need a prophet because we're covenant breakers at our hearts. Now, I want you to notice, so that we need a prophet, but the prophets actually pointed to someone else. Jesus is different because he came and he spoke a message, but he was also the message himself. He actually reestablishes what it means to be right with God. Now, Deuteronomy 18, now this is a very important text because Moses tells us there's going to come a prophet someday from amongst, the, from amongst the people of Israel that they should listen to. Notice what he says in Deuteronomy 18. This is very important. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. 
And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded. And so even Moses tells us there's coming a prophet. There's coming a prophet. In all the former revelation, it was partial, it was incomplete, but then Jesus comes on the scene. And he comes and declares things like, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed, blessed are they, here is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like this and like that. Jesus is both, here's how he's distinct from the prophets. Uh, The prophets pointed to God. Jesus came and pointed to himself. That is strikingly different. Jesus is the messenger, but he is also the final message from God. So it's God's final word. I'm often reminded of this. When you, if you ever talk to Mormons, um, I'm often reminded of this because they'll begin to talk about, if you meet a Mormon, a really faithful Mormon, they will begin talking about immediately, we believe in one prophet, prophet Joseph Smith, this, that, and the other. And I'm always reminded when I talk to them because I'm like, Jesus is the last prophet. Notice what he says again in verse 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to who? To us, by his son. Don't miss that. Those last days, people ask all the time, are we in the last days? Yes, We've been in the last days since Jesus' resurrection. Since Jesus' ascension, we've been in the last days. The last days are the rabbinic equivalent of the time of the Messiah. And yes, we are there. So it's God's final word. We don't look for another word from God. We look for God's word that he's already said. So it's God's final word. He's also God's sufficient word. Notice what he goes on to say. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Boy, this sounds like a different prophet, doesn't it? No prophet before him has ever come and said, God has said, through him I've created the the world. I want you to notice how this passage is laid out. I think it's helpful. There should be another image back there, uh, Ed. Yes. So I, I split it up for you a little bit. If you're looking at your text... I want you to notice, and the colors aren't really good, but he split up just a little bit. It makes a lot of sense. At many times and in many ways, compared with these last days, who spoke? God spoke. To who? To us. To me and you. By who? By Christ. And so we need to see that Jesus is our great prophet. And the question then is, well, how? How has he done this? Well, I think uh, a quote from Robert Lethem really encompasses it well. He says, The Bible does not compete with Christ. It is complementary. In, in entrusting ourselves to the Savior, we believe, trust, and obey His Word to us, given by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of the prophets and the apostles. Christ Himself, the great and chief and final prophet. And we hear Jesus saying, If you hear these words of mine and believe, you will be my disciples. Brothers and sisters, we don't look for another word from God. We don't look for another word from God. 
He has spoken, and so we should not expect to, to, to look around. Paul even says in another place, even if an angel would come to you and tell you a contrary gospel, reject him. Joseph Smith actually stands as a good example of a man who received a vision from an angel. I actually believe he really did receive a vision from an angel. And you know what? He believed him. And now we have another false gospel. Listen to Jesus again. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Boy, that's a different prophet, isn't it? Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Or listen again to what Jesus says. Another place in John 6. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So he's the message, but he's also the messenger. I want to say another piece here as well to this. We need to remember as Christians that the the message of the gospel is offensive. I want you to pick me out one prophet in the Old Testament who people said, oh, look, a prophet's coming. We love him. Zero. Maybe one, if you could find me one or like a few people that liked him, great. Maybe Jonah, actually, but then Jonah hated them. So our message is offensive because it's a message that says our life, everyone's life is going in an opposite direction and the only way to true life is Christ. And so our message, our prophetic message of the gospel is always offensive at first, at least. So don't expect the world to be nice to you. Okay? Now you need to be nice to them, love them, be kind with them, bearing with them, but don't expect it to be reciprocated, ever. And let me give you another piece. Don't expect them to play fair either. Don't expect for the world around us who hates Jesus Christ to play fair with us, because they don't, and they won't. Jesus is our great prophet. He is the better word from God. I want you to notice then too, we need to keep going. Jesus is, he's not only our great prophet, he fulfills that office, but he's also our great high priest. Now this is the one that's a lot more familiar with us, and he is our better righteousness, a better righteousness. So we need to consider what did the Old Testament priests do? Why is this even an office? Well, the priests, I think this is actually helpful, back to my little image up here, sometimes, I, sometimes late at night I'm like, ooh, That'd be really good if I could sketch this out. The priests, their role actually was from the people. They were to represent the people to God. Now, that's a really interesting way to think about it. So every time we see in the Old Testament the priests acting, they were representing the people to God. So when we had priests who were, I don't know, um, terrible people, that's pretty bad, isn't it? Because now you have people who were awful in their role. I can think of several people, and I'm forgetting their names in this moment. Uh, Samuel's sons, that's a good example, of men who were awful people. Now, they represented the people to God. But what did they do? They, they didn't represent them accurately, did they? They didn't care for them. They abused the people. The priests were selected by God, represented the people to God, and offered sacrifices from the people to God. Now, why? We have to ask the question. So if Christ is the great, great high priest, why is it necessary for a priest for our salvation? Well, all throughout the Old Testament, well, Hebrews 5 says this. I think this is helpful. For every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
Or as Hebrews 10 then goes on to say, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And I want us to see actually why this is necessary, that Christ be our great high priest is twofold. First, it's he's our offering. He is himself the offering for our sins. Unlike the priests before him, who brought different sacrifices, bulls, goats, he himself purifies us from sin. Now that's different, isn't it? He himself is the offering. He himself, he wasn't pointing to something outside of him to say, God, we've brought you this. He's saying, God, they've brought me. I'm coming to act on their behalf. Notice what he says in verse 3. I think this is really important. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This offering that Christ offered was the purifying work prophetically shown even in the Old Testament. But it's not just outward cleansing. He cleanses us also spiritually. He cleanses us inwardly. The high priest was the one, if you remember, was the one every year in the Jewish system who would go in once a year into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the mercy seat. Listen to what, Jesus, or what Hebrews then says later of Jesus. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Christ's priesthood shows us that there's one right now in heaven speaking a better word on your behalf. The yearly sacrifices are no more. The yearly sacrifices are done with. There's no need for another sacrifice. Because Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice for all. Hebrews 10 then also says, my eyes can fall upon it. Yes, Hebrews 10, 10 says, and by that will, he, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So he is the offering, but here's the other beautiful piece. He is also the offerer meaning that he is the one who intercedes for sinners. The Old Testament priests would come, and they would actually have to make, before they would enter the holy place, they would actually have to make sacrifices for themselves, because they themselves were not clean. But Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus was one who was himself clean. Listen to what... Psalm 110 is actually very important for the book of Hebrews. Actually, it's referenced like eight times in the book of Hebrews. But this is what's in, the, in, the, in the, the, the writer's mind when he says, the Lord has sworn, in, in Psalm 110, for, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about Melchizedek. He actually does, takes all of chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews to talk about that. And he says in actually chapter 7, Consequently, 
He, that is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, when we have a, we, right now, I don't know how often you think about this. Actually, you should do this sometime this week. Ask somebody, maybe your neighbor or something, what Jesus is doing right now. I'll ask you maybe. What is Jesus doing right now? Interceding for us? Good. I don't know who said that, but that's good. Right now, Christ is indeed interceding for sinners. And the way we answer that question is pivotal. Because if Jesus just saved us in the past and then just said, okay, guys, peace out. I'm done with you all. You all figure it out. I've saved you. I've done the work for you. That's not what he's doing. Right now, at the throne room, as Dane Ortland says, intercession is the constant hitting refresh of our justification in the, in the courtroom of heaven. So our justification, our declared righteousness status, Jesus continually hits the button of refresh, refresh, refresh. You know, it's encouraging to hear from friends. I'll sometimes get friends, other pastors specifically on Sunday, praying for me. They'll text me and say, brother, I'm praying for you, praying for you. It's always really encouraging. But what if I told you in a given week, maybe even this past week, that in every moment, Jesus himself was praying for you? Well, that changes our situation, doesn't it? But every moment, actually, it's actually in our weakest moments that he's interceding for us. Dane Ortland again, I think, helpfully says, our sinning goes to the uttermost, but his saving goes to the uttermost. And his saving always outpaces our, outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because he always lives to intercede for us. You know, before Christ sat at the right hand of the Father, we had one who would condemn us to the Father. But now, We have one who constantly makes intercession. You know, I don't know if you're like most Christians as they begin begin walking in their walk um, with Christ. Um, There's usually like a moment when they first start walking with Christ that they see many, 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 many victories over sin. It's really encouraging. But then there gets to be a point in the Christian life that I would almost say that like the tires kind of bog down. And then you start seeing different patterns that you start walking in sin. And you hate it. You hate it because you love Jesus. And yet you just keep walking in it. And brothers and sisters, based upon this text and others, I can confidently say that it's in those moments, in those moments where you feel like you're spinning your tires, that knowing that Christ himself is interceding for you, is most pivotal. I don't know what it is. Each of us probably is a little different, but it's in those moments that Christ himself is interceding for you. What a glorious Savior we have. So Jesus is our great prophet. Jesus is also our great high priest. Finally, I want us to consider that Jesus is our great King. Jesus is our great king. He is the better ruler. Now, this one, I will say, of the three, I don't think about his kingship as nearly as often as I think about the other two. 
But the king in the Old Testament, if we have to go back, see what the kingship was in the Old Testament, I think this is actually really helpful. The king in the Old Testament was actually meant to represent God to the people. And so when we have wicked kings, and we, we can go through, go look at First and Second Kings, you literally just have a lineage of all the kings that came. And so when you have a really wicked king, so take um, Manasseh for a second. He's an awful king. When he's a king, though, he actually doesn't represent God to the people. That's the problem. That's ultimately the problem. The king represented God to the people. Actually, Adam, arguably, was the first king. And he was the first one who rebelled. Now, in the Old Testament, the king would sit over Israel, was actually referred to as a son, a son of God. And so when we talk about Jesus as being the son of God, he is the embodiment, the, the, the pattern that we saw of the kings in the Old Testament was a reflection of his kingship that has always been. Exodus 4 is really helpful. Just hear it from God's mouth himself. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, as he says to Moses, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, go behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Which is actually why God executes the first son there in Egypt. Because his son, which was Israel, which is embodied in Christ, was in captivity. Then we see later, God say, as they, as they come into the land or getting ready to come into the land, Moses writes in Deuteronomy, he says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. I think this is really interesting because we often think that, well, God never actually made, meant for the kingship to exist, but he really did. The difference is, the qualification here is, one that he picks, one that he thinks, this is the one I want you to pick. And we know the story. We, we know the story of Jonathan, or of, uh, of Saul and David. Saul was tall, and he was big, and he looked like the other kings of the nations. And they're like, oh, we want that one. Give us Saul. But who did God want for them? David. Because God looked at the internal. He looked at the heart of a man, not at the outward appearance. Listen to what God then promises David. This is very important as we get this sketch of the Old Testament kings. He says, he promises David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Do you hear that language? I will establish his throne forever. Underline that. Every king who successively came after David failed. They were limited. They were limited by death. They were limited also because they were really terrible people. Notice what he says again. Jump down just to verse 16. It's up on the screen. And he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And the question, the, the, the stark question of the Old Testament is how? 
How will this happen? How will this happen? We see this being answered in the Lord Jesus himself. But we have to ask the question, why? Why is a king necessary for our salvation? I don't think we ever asked that question. We know why a prophet's necessary, because we know we stray. We know why a priest is necessary, because we sin. Why is a king necessary for our salvation? The king is necessary because our hearts naturally are utter rebels. Let me say that one more time. We need a king because our hearts are naturally rebellious. We also need a king because one of the jobs of the kings in the Old Testament was to defeat the enemies of Israel. The king was necessary in our lives because we need someone to defeat our enemies, namely sin and death and the devil. Notice what he says in Hebrews again. He says, he, actually, jump back to verse 2 in Hebrews. But in these days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. I want you to notice, uh, uh, Ed, you can switch to the next slide. If you see there, there's actually what's called a uh, structural, it's it's called like a chiasm, actually. But what's important to see is actually verse 3 is what's highlighted here. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. But he does it in two ways, as being our priest and being our king, our priest king who's seated at the right hand of the Father. Here's what I want us to see finally as we close up. He is the Lord of the universe, the one who has always been from eternity past, broke into the created world via his, his, his incarnation and his resurrection and is then exalted to the right hand of the Father. And we probably wonder, I hope you're wondering, how is it that Jesus, in his death, is exalted to the right hand of the Father? It's actually in his resurrection, I should say. But it happens because our king has defeated death. Christ's resurrection proves he is indeed the Lord of the universe. Listen to Colossians 2. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So that's what he is. He is the Lord of the universe. Let me give you one more. He also upholds the universe. He upholds the universe. Notice what he says in verse 3 again. He, that is Jesus, is the, the radiance, the sunshine from the Son of the Father, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I think this quote by Abraham Kuyper is very helpful here. He says, There is not a square inch 
in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, our, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I you to hear that one more time. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's mine. Just recently I was asked a question to the effect of, why is abortion wrong? Who are you to say that abortion is wrong? Christ says it's wrong. That's the measuring block of everything we do. Every piece of music we listen to, we shouldn't ask, what, is, what does my parents think of this? We should ask, what does Christ think of this? We shouldn't ask over, over things that we watch, does, what, what would my wife think of this? How about what would Christ think of this? Listen to what Paul, or, uh, Psalm, the psalmist says in another place. He says, as for me, this is what, this is what God says in, through the mouth of David. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Sound familiar? Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Who's saying that? I don't think we ever think about this. Who's saying that? Christ is saying that. So when we talk about going to the nations, you'll hear every week, what do we do? We pray for a missionary and we pray for a country. Why? Why do we pray for it? If Jesus is just, if the message of Jesus is just for me and my little house and my little pocket, then why pray for the nations? Why pray that Turkey, the country of Turkey, where there's 0.000% Christian, why pray that more people would see his lordship? Because one day they're going to see his lordship. And they're either going to see it. Here's, here's the thing we have to keep remembering. They will see it either in justice or they will see it in mercy. Those are the only two options. Brothers and sisters, this is a beckoning cry from the book of Hebrews, as well as from Jesus himself, our great king. Do not fear those around you. Our king is sitting on his throne. We live in a world of insurrectionists, people who hate the king who rules over all. Listen to what Jesus says in another place. Rejoice. Why? Now, now when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, because our redemption is drawing near. The king is coming back. This is what every, every person in your life and my life who doesn't know Jesus does not want to hear. Someday, King Jesus is coming back, and there will not be one wrong under heaven that will not be righted. Not one. I want you to see lastly, so Jesus is our great king. He's the Lord of the universe. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And I want you finally to see the superiority of the son. The superiority of the son. Now we could spend the rest of our time just looking at the book of Hebrews because that's all it talks about. But listen to what he says in verse 4 again having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. Now, the Hebrews likely, if I had to guess, just, just contextually as well as in the book of Hebrews, they really loved the angels because the angels were the ones who were the mediators of the old covenant. 
And they kept, in returning back to the Old Covenant, they're returning back to seeking angels to bring them news from God. But the writer of Hebrews makes explicit, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the priests. Jesus is better than the kings. Jesus is better in and of himself. He is better because he's fulfilled all these offices in the Old Testament. I love what Stephen Wellam says again. He says, Our need for truth is found in him as the final prophet and revelation of God. Our need for a righteous standing before God is achieved by him as our priestly representative, substitute, and covenant head. Our need to have our rebel hearts subdued, our enemies defeated, and the new creation inaugurated, ultimately consummated, is accomplished by him alone as our conquering king. In Christ alone, brothers and sisters, we see the comprehensive nature of the destruction of sin and the necessity to redeem us from fallen humanity, or redeem the fallen humanity. As we close out, I, wanna, I want you to consider this um, example that um, C.S. Lewis actually gives in his book, The Chronicles of Narnia. And my plea for us, my plea is for the younger generation, my plea for old, young, in-between, is to take Jesus on his terms, not on my terms. If you're looking for Jesus to just fulfill some vague sense of emptiness in you, there will probably feel like at times he doesn't. And then you'll think Jesus has failed you. But the reality is, is when we come to him on his terms, being prophet and priest and king, we realize, oh, we have a worthy, worthy Savior. There's a, there's a scene in the, in the book of the Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy comes back into Narnia, and I think Wellam helpfully points this out. He says, as Lucy is lying between Aslan's front paws, looking up at him in glowing adoration, we hear this interchange. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, Lucy said, Lucy, you're bigger. I didn't remember you being this big. And she says, what he says to her is so surprising. That's because you're older, little one. Not because you are, referring to Aslan. I'm not. But every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. And the question we need to ask, is our Savior growing in our theology? Is our theology growing in such a way that our vision of who Jesus is is just growing and expanding and seeing the beauty of Christ all the more? Is it growing in that way? I want us to turn and I want us to take communion together. And as we do so, I want us to remember um, that, that we have a prophet and we have a priest and we have a king who surpasses all the rest. So I want us, uh, if the deacon can come forward, we're going to take communion together. Jared, if you and...